Hello, friends. We are back with episode 124 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. This is the weekly-ish podcast where we talk about the latest happenings and the great resources that are shared on the Our Weekly site for your Our Learning Pleasure. My name is Eric Nance, and as always, I am joined by my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, we're wrapping up the month of May. How are you doing today, my friend? Doing well. It's pretty surreal to think that it is the end of May and that we're headed into June here and summer's in full swing and we've got some workshop materials to get going on. But uh, <laughs> You took the words out of my mouth on that one. Yes, uh, the September will be here real quick. So yeah, you and I have some follow-up to do after we get through. That's right. PositConf is, is coming up quick, but everything's going well. It is, it is. Yeah, we're trying to tidy up our loose ends here so we can focus on that a lot. But of course, what we're focusing on for the next you know, 20, 30 minutes or so is this excellent issue that has been curated by our curator this week is Ryo Nakakawara, another longtime contributor to the R Weekly Project. And as always, he had tremendous help from our fellow R Weekly team members and contributors like all of you around the world with your poll requests of new resources and other great information to share. So we're going to dive right into our first highlight here with a dive into functional programming, but how you can save a boatload of time with some interesting helpers in a very fundamental package that I know I use every single day. But you know, we do functions for almost everything in R, and a lot of times they might have multiple arguments, and you might find yourself in the situation that you're going to call this over and over again, maybe tweaking one, maybe two of them, but then you're going to keep the rest of them the same. This comes up quite a bit in, say, visualization or maybe some other modeling-type summaries where your data is basically the same format, maybe give or take a different subset or two, but your model terms might be the same without maybe a little modification here and there. Our first post comes from Michael DeCrescendo, hopefully I'm saying that right, who is a quantitative researcher, and he gives us a great spotlight on the partial functions that you can create in your R exploits via the per package. And he actually calls this a couple different phrases. He also calls this a curried function, which for some reason made me think of curry the food, but I don't think that was his intention. But in any event, um, this is a, he leads off the blog post with a simple example of let's say you have a set of you know elements and a vector in this case a logical but there's an na thrown in there when you do the mean of that if you know the mean function pretty well it does not like those missing values because you're getting a missing value right back at you and you wonder what the heck happened well that's where you got the handy argument na.rm equal true you're able to take the mean of that and then you're all set. Now imagine you're going to do this a whole bunch of times in your code. Do you really want to keep supplying that na.rm argument all the time because it's not true by default? You have to? Well, no, you don't actually. Because you can create what's called a partial function, which is a function appropriate enough from the per package, which you might know does a whole lot of map reduce and iteration pipelines very easily but you can create your own version of, in this case, the mean function by supplying it into partial, the name of the function you want to modify, and then whatever arguments of that original function you want to fix. 
So in this case, you just set na.rm equal true in that partial. And now every time you call that modified mean function, you only need that one vector of whatever you want to compute the mean for. Now, trivial example to start off with, but then the rest of the post talks about where this can really be useful day to day. And ggplot2, oh boy, I love me some geomes, and a lot of times those geomes have a lot of similarities, especially in doing multiple groups or multiple different facets. You may be only changing maybe your variable for x or y or whatever have you. Well, guess what? Just like what we talked about above, you could create a partial for your favorite geome functions, say the his geome histogram or geome bar plot, whatever have you, and then you can fix the parts that you know you're not going to change in that whole ggplot visualization pipeline. You can just stick with maybe changing a variable name, maybe a, one of the aesthetics that you know is going to look a little different, and now you've reduced the potential error that can happen when you copy paste things a lot of times as we've been victims of experience here you copy paste a lot sometimes weird things happen so the more you can minimize that the better off you are and then additional um, examples that michael highlights here is back in the ggplot ecosystem are scale functions where again you may be doing a very similar thing with changing like the colors of a you know a gradient or a set of categorical colors of a various um, scale for color or fill again make a partial make it a lot easier that way you only have to reduce you reduce your typing quite a bit and then you've made yourself a little more elegant code in the process but there those are specific examples here but then uh, michael concludes with more of his high-level takeaways for why partial functions are worth your time. I think convenience is number one for a reason here because, again, when you're trying to be efficient with your code writing, you want to minimize the chances of duplication, hence why we like to create functions in the first place, right? We don't want to repeat that same processing over and over again. Well, it just is kind of meta. You can do the same thing for functions themselves. So I think that's really helpful. Other benefits include being able to compose these one after the other very effectively, kind of like the layer approach that we see in ggplot2, but are able to, in essence, could use these to chain together different operations, again, bringing efficiency along the way. And then also being able to abstract away the parts of your function or the original function that maybe isn't that helpful in the big picture, but there's just that one or two set of of arguments that you say, okay, that's the part I'm going to change over and over again, and I'm just going to fix that. And then the part that's not in the post that I made a connection to, we always find a way to work shiny into this, right, Mike? This reminded me a lot of why I like modules so much, because maybe I will do a module of a classical shiny input, like a select input or a checkbox input or whatnot, but I know I want to reuse it multiple times, and there's only like one or two things I want to change. Maybe it's a label. Maybe it's the choices going in. Well, now I save myself some typing by fixing the other parameters in the module function of the UI and the server, and then I just have to call those pairs just very elegantly with maybe one or two arguments, like the ID and maybe one other of the custom parameters that needs to be tweaked. And now I've got an easier way to debug that and easier way to maintain that too. So I think 
the principles in Michael's post here also can be a nice benefit to taking the module approach in Shiny itself. So great spotlight on partials. I admit I have not used partials verbatim. I've used safely in the past to help um, eliminate the need of my app going crashing down if the user did something extremely silly with the inputs. But uh, safely has been another valuable part of my toolbox. But boy, I'm going to use partials a lot more often now after seeing this uh, great reminder from uh, Michael's post here. So now back to my co-host, Mike, what did you think about this great post here? Likewise, you know, I know that Per has some really interesting functions and I was thinking of safely and quietly, which we discussed those, those functions recently. It's kind of interesting to me how and why those particular functions came to end up in the per package, which is mostly about iterating over lists. But hey, I'm typically using the per package uh, for iterating over lists. So it's nice to have those functions available as well when I import that particular package. Um, you know, and those functions safely and quietly, they sort of augment other functions, right? But I did not know anything about the existence of the partial function in per. So this blog post was a real eye opener for me uh, towards this particular function. And like you said, partial allows you to modify a function's arguments that have pre-specified defaults. Um, you can create a new function using partial that employs these same functions, uh, but changes the default specifications. Um, you know, and you had a great example there of, of changing the na.rm uh, argument for, to true instead of false uh, as it stands in functions like sum, min, max, and mean uh, that we get in base R. And Michael had a really nice example, like you said, in using ggblot2, um, because some of those functions right, take a ton of arguments. Uh, and when you're adding a new layer onto your ggplot, you may want to only change one of those many arguments. You, you know, you want to have most of the arguments fixed. So instead of copying and pasting twice or, or writing an entire separate function the long way, to help with this, right? The partial function is kind of a shortcut to doing that and it'll make your life way easier. I have a Quarto project going on right now that involves a lot of data visualization and ggplot work uh, where we're validating you know, three separate statistical models. And I think that this could be a huge asset to us in terms of boosting uh, my team's ability to, to really iterate quickly, especially in our own plotting functions and reducing the amount of code that we need to write. I literally see utility for this partial function uh, this afternoon when I when we're off this call, I think I'm going to start employing it. So I really appreciate Michael putting this blog post together to, to let us know sort of as a PSA for me that this function exists. I really like the, the final discussion at the end of the blog post on how functions are objects and we should think of them as such and that we have the ability to modify them, you know, with the partial function or, or otherwise. Um, and it's, it's a really nice breakdown of all the different concepts at play here so this was a really cool one to get this week in the highlights i couldn't agree more and as i think about what you mentioned earlier being you know pleasantly surprised that things like this like partial being available in the per package i think of one of my favorite cartoons growing up transformers there's more than meets the eye sometimes with what these packages offer there is um, yeah, what brought purge to the dance to a lot of people are the map functions, rightfully so. They're a huge vital part. But this is what I would conjecture is the posit team's attempt at really harnessing on a lot of the functional programming principles 
maybe some that are definitely more niche or maybe some that you don't realize you need until you do actually need them. So they don't get a lot of attention. But I do see partial being a valuable asset, especially those that are writing their own packages, wrapping functional paradigms and functional frameworks. I can already tell that after I get through a point release of a package I'm updating for the day job that I'm going to clean up the code quite a bit with some of these principles here. I, I got close, but there are some inefficiencies there. I'm like, yeah, that's for next time, but I file an issue so that I can remind myself of this post to help me uh, keep on the right ship there. No, it actually makes more sense now that I'm reading the, the per package down website. It says per enhances ours functional programming toolkit by providing a complete and consistent set of tools for working with functions and vectors. So that absolutely hits the mark, those other functions as well. Another friendly reminder that you, you never you never know sometimes what we take for granted, that there are other hidden gems in these in these uh, very sophisticated packages. But heck, our weekly, that's one of our jobs, to spotlight these hidden gems. And I dare say we've done a good job of that. And hopefully you all enjoy learning more about these uh, partial functions and how they can enhance your work down the road. And turning on to our next highlight, um, actually, there's a bit of continuity here where we've had the great pleasure of uh, sharing a few different posts that have been coming from the X1R Consortium blog that are doing their own version of spotlighting uh, fabulous and innovative members of the R community. And we got another one of those posts just for you in this highlight right now, where they recently sat down with Sebastian Rochette, who is um, by day a very valued member of the Think R organization in France that does a lot of data science and R consulting. And they're also the organization behind, you know it, one of my favorite packages, the Golem package. So it's definitely from Think R as well. But they recently talked to Sebastian, the folks at the R Consortium, about his previous experiences on some of his current projects going on, as well as his perspective of the community itself. So the post starts with a little bit about uh, Sebastian's background, and he had been using R for 15 years. And, well, that does still make me feel kind of old because I'm a little longer than that. But, hey, you know what? Good company, I guess. Um, But also he is very quick to say he is very invested in the R community by being an organizer for the Meetup R Knots over in France which has a hybrid approach, physical and online events. But I've heard great things about that meetup. So if you're in that area, I definitely highly recommend attending that as well. And then the rest of the interview talks about his current project that he's working on heavily, which is a package we talked about on the highlights about a year or so ago. And that is the Fusion or Funzen. I actually don't know which one. So Sebastian, you quote, you correct me if you want to send your feedback. But this is the package that helps you create a new R package using R Markdown as your driver for it. And this is an interesting approach where typically when we create packages, we think about getting all the functions done first. They run well. We start building tests for them. And then kind of documentation comes along for the ride maybe midway or towards the end, maybe you're better disciplined than I am, I don't know. But Funzen or Fusen turns that on its head 
by saying you start the documentation first and there are friendly little wrappers that are orchestrated by the package to convert those are markdown type documents that are having your function source code into the structure that your package depends on. So this is a great utility, I think, for those that are in a couple different camps, perhaps. One, maybe the idea of creating the package is a little intimidating to you, but you're very comfortable with our markdown and Cordal and doing reproducible research or literate programming documents. Fusion is going to be right up your alley on that. I think that's a great way to kind of take your your skills when creating those documents and be able to get a package right off the bat. So I think that is very helpful for a lot of the end users. And I think the other great example is if you really are passionate about getting your documentation principles outlined correctly first, but you don't want to do that cognitive shift of doing like the R function development and then going back to like the package documentation, kind of hopping back and forth. I think I think Funzen can do a terrific job of kind of orchestrating all that for you in, in one place. Um, I think it's a great package, um, great set of templates that it comes with, and it's definitely worth your time if you're thinking about a different way of getting your package um, off the ground. And then he does mention that this is an ongoing effort, you know, like anything in open source, it's never old, truly finished, you know, for a very long time. So he definitely welcomes contributions. He talks about little calls of action. He would like to see all those in the industry start to put Fuse in through its paces to see if they miss any cases. They encourage issues on their GitHub tracker and the like. And also, he mentions that there is a teaching template built into this as well. So you could even use that for yourself to explore what is possible. But also, maybe you want to show your colleagues how Fusion works. You know, it's going to have templates for you to teach others about Fusion as well. So I think it's a great spotlight to this interesting development workflow for package um, authoring. And another great um, set of additional tidbits that are in this uh, blog post and great interview. And Sebastian, I've always had great respect for you and um, great to see you doing more great innovative things that think are as well as in the R community in general. Yeah, this was another great interview from the R Consortium to, to follow up on the interview with, with Mael last week on uh, unit testing package functions that interact with a web resource. So this is sort of a total, totally different domain in his discussion about uh, our community building and development as well as the Fusion package. And I really like his belief in giving back to the community through open source. Uh, it's, you know... It, He's the head of production at ThinkR, where I believe they do a lot of consulting work, right? And they have to do do some paid work to, to keep the lights on. But at the same time, um, they really believe in the value of the community and they invest quite a bit of time in developing and maintaining these R packages that are super heavily used, such as as Gollum and, and Fusion and others. Um, so I really appreciate his belief in giving back through software development uh, and open source. And it's it's something that, you know, we really try to do at Catchbrook as well, whether it be directly through an R package, you know, a public facing shiny app, or, or even just a technical blog post. I think there are a lot of ways to try to give back if, if you have the time. It doesn't always necessarily need to be, you know, a financial 
donation that you are providing to the community. There's a lot of ways to try to give back. And he does have a call to action at the end of this blog post after he walks through, you know, some of the technical details of what Fusion does. Uh, and he says, it doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert when it comes to building our packages, try Fusion, just try it. And he bets that it'll improve your workflow. One thing for me that I've sometimes struggled with when developing an R package is sort of knowing the order that I'm supposed to do things in and really having some sort of an organized workflow or a general workflow or flow during that initial package development phase. It's it's easy when you're you know adding enhancements or bugs or things like that and you have your GitHub issue tracker and you're you're linking pull requests to a particular issue and, and closing those out and updating the version of your package. But that initial development life cycle, um, there's a lot of pieces to it that have to be brought together and there's not necessarily a great template or a great order for doing that or, or a great way to help you stay organized during your package development. So I think Fusion is a phenomenal way to do that, to maintain your organizations, to sort of see the high level of, of how everything fits together and how everything connects within an R package um, because there can be a lot to it depending on the type of package that you are developing and a lot to maintain and a lot to have to see at one point in time. So like Sebastian says, try it. Um, I think I'm definitely going to try it during my next package development endeavor, and I will try to report back on any efficiencies gained because it looks very promising. Yeah, I was thinking for myself as I think about use cases, a lot of times the you know, more sophisticated projects I have, there's multiple components. You got maybe the front end UX, so to speak, with Shiny, or maybe an API or things like that. But then you got you got to architect the business logic somewhere. A lot of times I'll do separate packages for the business logic. And yeah, it seems like uh, Fusion would be a great way to capture my thoughts right away as I get them and then start to slowly piece together the the functions themselves as part of this. It's not too dissimilar to some of the principles that we've seen uh, documented in the, um, well, again, speaking of Think R, the Engineering Production Great Shiny App book, which has been on my bookshelf for a long time now, but they have a section about, hey, maybe vignettes can be helpful as you sort out business logic considerations. Well, if you want to take that step further, use Fusion to make that package a business into a or make business logic functions into a package, have that documented very well as part of the workflow, then fold that into your app when you're ready. I think that's a great combination that could be interesting for those of you that are doing more than just a uh, simple, in terms of fit for purpose, shiny app, but one that has a lot of different intricacies with backend processing and the like. So I think there's lots of opportunities here. And certainly if you haven't tried out Fusion before, I think it's a great time to start because it's been getting a lot more mature. A lot of great updates we've seen come through in the previous R Weekly issues and the diff of the package updates. And sounds like they are very much actively maintaining it. All right, Mike, uh, an issue of our weekly and in particular our podcast wouldn't be complete without at least some visit to a visualization inspired post. And our last highlight comes from Peter Ellis, who is a director or director of statistics for development division in the Pacific community in Australia with a recent adventure he had with creating an intuitive map inspired by a workshop he attended to visualize the 
women proportion of parliamentarians on an intuitive map. So a little bit of background here. Um, Peter attended a workshop on the, from the Statistical Institute for Asia and Pacific where they talk about different infographics you can show your users. And he was inspired by one of them, which showed proportions of group membership superimposed on different regions of a map. And so this seemed like an interesting opportunity for him to take a real data set or a real applied problem of seeing the balance of gender with respect to representation of different parliament seats across these different countries. And so the way he accomplished this is that he used ggplot along with some other stand, you know, mainstays in the mapping ecosystem to create a map of the Asia Pacific region. And then in these regions show what looked like a stacked bar chart that showed different thresholds for different colors of the representation of women on these different parliaments. <laughs> and I like he's he's very honest in this post. He was having some sleep-deprived time in an airport, and he thought, well, why not make a cool R project? I've been there, buddy. I've been there. Hey, you got that layover? Hack on that package. Hack on that blog post. Go for it, buddy. I love it. So this, he's got the code that he accomplished this task, and I admit the plot looks pretty darn good. It's got an interesting variation on a couple things by showing one of the complicated parts was he wanted to show very easily where the 50% threshold was on these on these um, bars that are seen across the region. So you could quickly get a picture on which um, regions were at or even above that threshold. The, map, the code itself looks pretty straightforward for the most part, but again, self-professed novice with visualization and mapping talking here. So, but it does look like something I could follow if I gave enough uh, practice time to. But then he concludes of an alternative as well that kind of does away from the map, but gets to more of the conventional, I think they call it like candlestick kind of charts. It's like a bar chart, but then you're laying out from left to right instead of up and down. And it annotates the actual percentages at the end of the height of the bar itself. So you can quickly see visually between these regions, the representation broken down by region and subregion. And admittedly, that take on the visualization is a little easier if you're kind of more new to ggplot2 and new to mapping. I think that one is something you can take a look at Peter's post here and really grok on how you can map the different geomes together, the different groupings together, and prepare your data effectively. So again, there's so many possibilities of how you can augment what may be a rather simple visualization at first, but then adding that extra dimension to really hit home the different geographic features or the different tendencies of these data. And again, a great applied example to practice these skills on. So, of course, as always, we have links to Peter's post in the show notes where you can look at the code and try it out for yourself. Maybe your own uh, custom visualization involving proportions and different regions. Yeah, this was a fun one. And just like Peter I and you, Eric, I have absolutely been there trying to kill time uh, during a layover, on a flight, when traveling, uh, in a doctor's office, all sorts, of, all sorts of random times where I have decided to just hack away at an R project like this just for the heck of it. And 
This is a really cool use case. Uh, this is a type of chart that I'm not sure I had ever seen before. It's almost like a, a little thermometer bar chart with a single bar um, in the center, I imagine, of each country on this map. And, you know, I, I think it's fun from a uh, sort of project standpoint and, and use case standpoint. But as even Peter admits, um, it might not be the most efficient way of transmitting sort of the information that's at play here. So he, he does uh, break out the information in that original map and bar chart into, I think, what are called like lollipop charts. Um, I've seen them called a million different things, like you said, candlestick. Um, and it, I think that that's a more efficient way to sort of convey the information, especially show me, you know, what are the uh, highest distributions or proportions of women parliamentarians in Asian, Asia Pacific countries, you know, the rank ordering um, versus the lowest. And then he also has it all faceted by uh, income status. So low income, middle income, high income. Um, so it, it's very interesting to see this data visualized this way. I love the fact that all the code that he developed is right here in front of us. It looks pretty much like just a combination of dplyr and ggplot2. Um, one thing that I thought might be cool in May add potentially add some may say it would subtract from the, the the map visual would be if it was interactive and we had the ability to sort of zoom in further on particular regions or, or particular countries um, in the visual because you know there's some areas where there, there's bars on what looks like just a, a speck on this particular map because it must be a tiny island um, in the Asia Pacific Ocean or something like that. So it, it would be cool to be able to sort of dig in deeper visually to uh, certain areas and regions of this map that I wanted to. I don't know if it's possible to reproduce this using some sort of an interactive mapping software. I have been um, fighting the good fight, and I mean fight as a, as a good word, with Leaflet lately doing a ton of Leaflet visualization work and, and mostly fighting the uh, color gradient legend scaling fight, if you will. Um, which, which is always fun. So, so I appreciate um, the nuances of what is going on in Peter's uh, map right here, employing the different color gradient scales, um, as well as sort of this thermometer type of uh, visualization to show, you know, what portion of 50% uh, is being taken up by the data in each country. So, yeah, I know I've had my fair share of interesting, uh, you might say, battles or, or uh, you might say debugging sessions with Leaflet and everything. But um, I think that the, what Peter's post does here, this shows you a way to think outside the box a little bit with what's possible with these visualizations, um, being able to compose these different dimensions together. So I think the best way to learn is like his approach, an applied problem where you can show a meaningful insight and really be able to, um, you know, share some of that learning with the community, but also craft your skills and, and make them even better at the same time. So again, great posts. And again, we um, invite you to check out the link itself because audio can only do so much justice to visual, but I think you'll agree. It definitely gets your attention and definitely um, is a very relatable uh, visualization to boot. Yes, and I'm not claiming to be a data visualization expert. Um, I know there are folks that, that really specialize there, but um, from all of my years of trying to do a good job of visualizing data, if there's one thing I know, it's that it's usually going to take 
some iteration uh, to figure out what is the best way to convey sort of the story behind your data to the end audience. I never get it the first time. Um, it usually takes both some brainstorming as well as actually putting a hands-on keyboard, seeing what plots come out the other side and, and tweaking them until I get something that, that I think represents the data in the way that, that I want to represent it. So this might be a, a case uh, of that exactly at play right here. Yeah, that even gives me vibes to the um, sliced competition I used to watch um, on the stream where they were hacking away at different ideas for visualization on top of the modeling performance to get some insights quickly. And I'd always marvel at the likes of David Robinson, Julia Silge, and many others that seem to have that innate ability to go from head to keyboard strokes to visualization in a matter of a minute and here little old me is fumbling away at data transformations and the most basic plots possible to get started but yes i'll bring back sliced i dare say nick is probably going to consider that but that's a busy dude but you know what another thing to keep you all busy is this fantastic issue of our weekly we got many more stories we could talk about but we're going to give a couple minutes for some additional finds that we've had in this issue. And one thing I noticed was um, a great um, set of slides that were shared at the recent Edmonton user group meetup, uh, which is run by our good friend, Peter Salimus. And his invited guest at this session was none other than Henrik Bengtsson, who is the architect, the originator of the Futureverse, um, a set of packages that give you so much new ability to harness R effectively in the use of H in the confines of HPC environments, multi-core, multi-session paradigms. So Henry gave a great talk about kind of the current and future state of the future verse um, with some great Q&A afterwards. So you can check out that um, Henrik's post, but also the recording is up on YouTube as well, which we'll link to in the show notes. I did have a watch on that while I was preparing my kid's room for a recent paint job, because if I'm going to do mundane housework, I'm going to learn something along the way, folks. And having these meetups online and having the recording afterwards is a great way to do that for me personally. So great, great talk. And I invite you to check it out if you haven't. So I found an interesting one, and believe it or not, this is another R Consortium uh, interview with Dr. Kylie Bemis on an R package that she developed called Matter for helping solve larger than memory issues, which is an interesting uh, new tool that we have in our toolbox. It comes sort of out of the bioconductor side of uh, R package development and R package uh, maintenance. And Dr. Kylie is a professor at the Corey College of Computer Science at Northeastern University, uh, nearby Boston to me. And I, I thought that this package was, was really interesting in its way that it works uh, with sparse and dense matrices, really employing some, some hardcore C++ under the hood, a particular C++ function that, that reads a small chunk of a file and sort of stores a blueprint uh, or a dictionary of where the different columns are stored in the file that you are working with, um, maps them to that location in, in a matrix, um, and depending on what part of the matrix is actually being accessed with the downstream functionality, uh, the matter package figures out what part of the file or multiple files uh, actually need to be read and, and figures out the most efficient way to do that. So this is another interesting one. I know we have you know data.table, 
We have the Aero package, all sorts of different options now um, to work with, you know, larger than memory or, or really large data sets and uh, might want to check matter out if that sounds like something that you face on a day-to-day basis as well, maybe particularly if you are in the sciences. Yeah, that's a great find, Mike, and I have tons of respect for the Bioconductor project. That's been a huge part of my earlier part of my career. We were dealing with lots of high-dimensional microarray uh, data sets and, and sample image files um, that were coming straight from the lab, and I have no idea, heads or tails, of how to process those. So any efficiencies they can make to make that processing easier is a huge win in my book. So that's a well-deserved uh, call out to some great work on that front. But yeah, and of course, just like what we like to talk about here on the show, we love to hear from you as well. If you, if you have feedback about the show, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can get in touch with us with the contact page that's linked directly into the show notes that you have with this episode. You also can get in touch with us um, via our weekly itself, rweekly.org. You can send your favorite resource for, a, for the upcoming issue. Maybe it's a blog post, a new package, a great new meetup or event that's about to happen. We'd love to hear about it. So it's all just a pull request away at the upcoming issues draft page so that you can um, have at it and let us know and the curator will get it into the next issue. And also you can get in touch with us in a very fun, creative way. If you're listening via a new podcast app, you can send us a boost directly into the podcast itself without anybody in between, just you and us. And you can find details about that in the show notes as well. And if you want to keep your favorite podcast player, hey, we don't judge. We, we love listening, having you listen from wherever you are. So you can send a boost to us directly from the podcast index itself, where this podcast is also hosted. We'll have details about that in the show notes as well. And lastly, but not least, you can get in touch with us on social media. I am sporadically on Twitter with at the RCast, but I'm also on Mastodon with at our podcast at podcastindex.social. And Mike, where can the listeners find you? Likewise on Twitter, uh, while it still exists, at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. And uh, on Mastodon at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org. Awesome stuff. And last bit of shout out, a bit of shout out to the, the parents out there dealing with kids that are off of school because uh, the struggle is real. And Mike knows that watching right now as we record this, but we'll leave that for all <laughs> of you, the listeners to use your imagination. But yes, that will do it for us on this edition of our weekly highlights that wraps up episode 124. And we'll be back with a new episode of our weekly highlights next week.